0: Well, good morning. Hello. Welcome to New Hope. Again. Just uh, by way of reminder, I know we've said this before, but uh, uh, if you're new, please be aware, we dress as comfortably as we possibly can, given the fact that this lovely and historic building is not air-conditioned. So uh, please feel free to uh, dress uh, in an appropriately comfortable manner. Uh, And by way of... uh, Correction of the bulletin. Uh, this week, uh, actually, we're doing Parshat Korach, starting in Chapter 16 of Numbers. Last week, when uh, Dr. John Frankie was here, uh, he had uh, different text he wanted to do. So uh, we're going to uh, actually cover Korach this morning, and next week we'll uh, use uh, or we'll do uh, a along with the following portion. This morning, I think Korach is especially appropriate given the holiday. This, if you haven't noticed, is uh, very important. Uh, day to celebrate in our nation's history. I got an email uh, yesterday from somebody in uh, Britain who had uh, uh, heard about a paper I delivered a couple weeks ago and asked me for a copy and I said, uh, well, I'm actually writing it up and uh, right now I'm I'm preparing diligently to celebrate properly uh, our initiation of a just resolution to the little dispute that our people had some centuries ago. When we have finished doing that, I will then turn to the matter at hand, but that is a more important and pressing concern. Uh, But uh, we're we're a democracy. We're a democratic republic. We're people who govern ourselves. But the reality is that uh, whether we govern ourselves or whether we're governed by somebody else, there is still the phenomenon of leadership. Every human institution has leaders. Those that claim not to have leaders have leaders. They just don't admit it. And the fact is that there is something about us, and there may be something especially about us as Americans, that can take a particularly jaded view of those who are in leadership. Right? The phrase, throw the bums out, ends up being tossed around, it seems, every election cycle. And uh, there is often an instinctive reaction when we read something in the newspaper about the way that a particular official is handling something to say, well, that's stupid. I could do that better. We see the phenomenon every four years or eight years when we have a new president that the policy ideas that made a lot of sense in the campaign end up not making nearly as much sense to him Once he gets all of the intelligence that was previously not available to him, when he finds out all that is really going on in the world, somehow the solutions seem more complicated. It's not an easy thing to be a leader. There's a guy named Ronald Heifetz, who's a physician and uh, an instructor in leadership at Harvard Business School, and he makes the point that leaders are always failing somebody. With or without authority, someone exercising leadership will be shouldering the pains and aspirations of a community, and frustrating at least some people within it. Adaptive work often demands loss. And the Heifetz talks in this whole book about the fact that, that the leadership is often not a matter of fixing stuff as it is a matter of guiding a community or an institution through the process of adapting to the realities that it faces. Not so much a matter of finding the solution and implementing it, but recognizing the complexity of a situation, realizing the difficulty of adapting to it, but making sure that that happens nonetheless. Certainly, we had a difficult situation in the desert of Sinai. I think we would all agree. We had people who had been in slavery for some 400-plus years, and had adapted to a culture of enslavement, and then were liberated by God from that enslavement, placed out in the middle of the desert en route to the promised land, given to them by God everything that they needed. He provided water miraculously. He provided food miraculously. He provided them with a way to worship him, told them exactly how to build the tabernacle, and exactly how to make the appropriate sacrifices. He designated specific people for specific tasks. And some of those people he designated, he designated for specific tasks of leadership. God set aside an entire tribe of the 12 tribes. The tribe of Levi was set aside specifically for administering worship as well as for national leadership. This was a theocracy, after all. And uh, if you'll throw the uh, the slide up, if you remember when the nation was encamped in the desert, of the Levites, you had basically four divisions. Moses and Aaron, to the right of the tabernacle, to the east. Uh, the family of, of Aaron were the priests. They were the ones who took care of actually making the sacrifices, actually bringing the incense, actually putting out the showbread. And the other Levites, the Merorites, the Gershonites, and the Kohathites, were, as you'll recall from a few weeks ago, God's roadies. When it was time for the tabernacle to be moved from place to place, they were the ones who were involved in breaking it down and carrying it and in setting it up in the next place. Of course, when the tabernacle was not being moved, they had other responsibilities dealing with the temple service. But as we talk today about Korach's rebellion, it's good for us to remember that uh, Korach was a Koathite. and it was the family of the Kohathites who hung out to the south of the tabernacle that are involved in this rebellion. See, the Gershonites and the Merorites were involved in carrying various parts of the exterior of the temple, the altar and so forth, but it was the Kohathites who had the responsibility of carrying the most holy items that were inside the tabernacle. But the way that worked is that, and we remember, I'm sure all of you fondly from back in Numbers 4, that uh, the work of the Kohathites at the tent of meeting, the care of the most holy things, when the the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and put it over the Ark of the Covenant Law. Then they're to cover the curtain with a durable leather, to spread a cloth of solid blue over that and put the holes, put the poles in place. And the same kind of thing happens with the other sacred objects inside the tabernacle. The priests have to go in and take care of covering these most holy objects before the Kohathites then can go in and haul them away. So if you picture the scene, it's time to move, and the Kohathites are sitting there twiddling their thumbs while the priests process by them and go inside and take care of covering up all of these holy objects. And then when they're done, and only when they're done, do the Kohathites get to go in and do their work. You've got to imagine a little bit of resentment must have built up, no? I mean, they're sitting there. They're Israelites just as much as the sons of Aaron are, right? In fact, they're Levites. They're a special tribe set apart by God for this service. But they're not from the one clan that is the actual clan of the priesthood. And so time after time, they're watching Aaron and his sons do this service, and they have to wait until they cover up these objects. Adding insult to injury, if you'll recall, because these are the most holy objects, they have to be carried around on poles, which are overlaid with metal, which are probably really, really heavy, and they don't get any help. The Marorites and the Gershonites at least get oxen when they get donated, but these guys don't get any U-Hauls to carry their gear around. They have to handle it all by themselves. Clearly, this was rubbing them the wrong way. And so Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levites, along with certain Reubenites, among them Edward G. Robinson, on the cover of your bulletin, Dathan from the Ten Commandments, rebelling against Moses, she, Dathan and Abiram, son of Eliab, son of Peleth, they became insolent. And they rose up against Moses, and with them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. So this is not just one disgruntled Levite. He has recruited leaders from the tribe of Reuben, the eldest, and he's recruited 250 well-connected leaders from the whole community. This is not a small insurrection this is a revolt so they came up as a group to oppose moses and aaron and they said to him you've gone too far the whole community is holy every one of them and yahweh is with them and they're right in that aren't they right didn't didn't god say i'm making you a kingdom of priests a holy people well how come you're the only one who Ones who get to go in and do this priestly service. Aren't we all holy? Aren't we all Israel? Why do you set yourselves above Yahweh's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. And then he said to Korach and all his followers, presumably after getting back up. In the morning, Yahweh will show who belongs to him and who's holy. And he'll have that person come near him. The one he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korach, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before Yahweh. Now, when's the last time we saw somebody taking incense and doing something with it in this story? Anybody remember this? Remember this was the sons of Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu? who brought unauthorized fire. They brought strange fire before Yahweh. They improvised their bit of the worship service. God was not amused. And what happened to them? They got smote. In fact, the the rabbis say that uh, because we read that they were taken out by their their, uh, garments... Uh, after they died, that the, it's, it's as though the fire came from within them and shot out their mouths, and they, uh, you know, the, this whole uh, Indiana Jones thing is not original. So here we have a little bit of foreboding, I think, as we see people taking censers and incense. So we'll see, Moses said, we'll see. All right, you know what? Yeah, everybody's holy. All right, you know what? The man. Yahweh chooses is the one who's holy. So uh, I think you guys have gone too far. And Moses also said to Korah, now listen, Levites, my cousins, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community? I mean, it's not like you guys aren't special. I mean, frankly, you guys could be resented by the rest of the nation, couldn't you? Because you get to do the things you get to do. You get to be brought near to himself. You get to do the work at Yahweh's tabernacle. You get to stand before the community and minister to them. He's brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you're trying to get the priesthood too? Come on. It's against Yahweh, Moses says, that you and all your followers have banded together. Who's Aaron that you should grumble against him? And the rabbis bring this out. They say that... uh, in a way, you think about it, it makes sense. We've got all these laws that Moses goes up on a mountain. He says, yeah, I just talked to God, and here's what God says. God says he's setting apart my family. In fact, God's setting apart my particular clan of my tribe to be involved as priests. And uh, here are some of the requirements for the burnt offerings. And these are the portions, the best portions, and we get those, right? Korach's like, we, we like brisket too. How come you guys get all the brisket? Oh, I guess God told you that. Sure. And, you know, it would make sense, really. You think about it. You know, it would make sense to be suspicious, except for the fact that these people have just been through what? All these plagues in Egypt, miraculous deliverance from Pharaoh's army. They've been fed in the wilderness. They've they've been taken care of by God, and God has, in, in myriad ways demonstrated his support of moses's leadership the fact that he stuck moses there in a place of responsibility over the people and these guys don't even know the times that moses basically begged god not to wipe out the entire nation no wonder moses is a little bit irritated so he summoned dathan and abiram the sons of eliab and he said but they said no who are you to summon us jerky Isn't it enough that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk (laughs) right brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey, Egypt. That was things really good there to kill us in the wilderness. Now you also want to lord it over us? You haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, you haven't given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. We're out in the desert. And now you want to treat these men like slaves? I don't think so. So then Moses became very angry and said to Yahweh don't accept their offering. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Obviously, the specific context of I have not taken so much of a donkey from them is lost. But the point is, I Moses says, I have not wronged any of these people. I haven't taken anything that wasn't mine. I haven't abused them. They're accusing me of stuff If I didn't know better, I'd say there's some projection going on here. They're accusing me of doing the things they would like to do. Moses said to Korah, you, all your followers, so appear to Yahweh tomorrow. You, they, Aaron, we're going to have a little showdown. Everyone takes a censer, puts incense in it. 250 censers. Present it before Yahweh. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each one took his censers. They put their burning coals and their incense in it. And they stood with Moses and Aaron At the entrance to the tent of meeting, and when Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, then the glory of Yahweh appeared to the entire assembly. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, All right, stand aside so I can smoke these fools. Moses and Aaron fell face down. They cried out, "Oh God, God of every human spirit, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins?" Yahweh said to Moses, "You guys need to learn how to count. There's 250 of them. But say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korach, Dathan, and Abiram." And <laughs> you got to imagine at this point, like they're all in. I mean, the the stake they have, the stakes are all the way up. And they're still, they're still pursuing this. Moses got up, went to Dathan and Abiram. The elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, get away from the tents of these wicked men. Don't touch anything belonging to them or you're going to be swept away too because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korach, Dathan and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children's and little ones at the entrances to their tents. Moses said, so this is how you're going to know that Yahweh has sent me to do all these things, that it wasn't my idea. I wasn't making stuff up on the mountain. I wasn't chiseling out tablets. If these men die a natural death, in other words, if they survive today, they wake up in the morning, they suffer the common fate of all human beings, they live to a ripe old age, then Yahweh has not sent me. But... If Yahweh brings about something totally new, and considering all the things you guys have seen to this point, that would be pretty impressive. If the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive to the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated Yahweh with contempt. And Moses is clear, it's not about me offended and irritated as I am in particular, these guys are coming up against the one true God of Israel. And as soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korach together with their possessions. They went down alive to the realm of the dead, everything they owned with them. And the earth closed over them. They perished and were gone from the community. At their cries the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us up too. And fire came out from Yahweh and consumed those 250 men who were offering the incense. Yahweh said to Moses, tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, to remove the censers from the charred remains. <laughs> it must have been a great job there. Scatter the coals some distance away, Because those censers are holy, the censers of the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. So hammer the censers into sheets to overlay the altar. For they were presented before Yahweh. They've become holy. Let them be a sign to the Israelites. So Eleazar the priest collected the bronze censers brought by those who had been burned to death. He had them hammered out to overlay the altar. As Yahweh directed him through Moses, this was to remind the Israelites that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before Yahweh, or he would become like Korach and his followers. So imagine that. Every time the people come to bring their sacrifice to the altar, they see the bronze covering there. They're reminded, this is what happens when you go against God. You think about the Levites, as they were ministering in the tabernacle as they're handling the offerings and the various implements, as they're helping to wash down the surrounding uh, the area surrounding the altar, which would have been just horrifically bloody all the time. Every time they see that bronze covering to that ark, they're reminded, we have a place, and other people have their place, and we are to stay in our place. And you think about the priests, the sons of Aaron, every time they made an offering on that altar and they saw the bronze hammered out to lay over it. Think about the priests who saw that and remembered just how dangerous a thing it is to go up against the Holy One of Israel. Just Think how profoundly they would have been reminded of their own high calling, the holiness of what they do. This kind of teaching has been abused over the years. In the Vatican, in the room where the Pope is chosen by the College of Cardinals, there's a painting by Botticelli in which basically the Pope is Moses. And the implication is that Korach's rebellion against Moses is like any rebellion against the Pope. You saw what happened to Korach, that's what's going to happen to you if you come up against the pontiff. But the fact that teachings can be abused doesn't mean that they aren't true when we understand them as... They are, which is why we get admonitions like we have in the letter to the Hebrews at the end in chapter 13 when the writer is wrapping up and he says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Have confidence in them, submit to their authority because they give keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. And this is relevant for leaders within the church. And it's relevant, too, for other leaders as well. That's why Paul says in his first letter to Timothy, he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. It pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. After all, there's only one God and one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has been witnessed to at the proper time. For this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. You can always hear the echoes of Moses there, can't you? Paul's saying, look, I did not make this up. I didn't go off on a mountain and make this stuff up. God is the one who appointed me to this to be a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. And he says in chapter 13 of his letter to the Romans, he says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except that which God's established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So whoever rebels against the authorities, is rebelling against what God's instituted. Those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And, of course, he doesn't mean here submitting to to false authority or to abusive authority. He doesn't, doesn't mean to betray Christ for the sake of following some leader who tries to set himself up in his place. But the fact remains, Paul says, that the rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Right? I mean... It, I, I, you think about when you first were learning to drive and how you just your, your heart would sink every time you saw a cop in the rearview mirror, right? Because you figured there must have been something you were doing wrong and he was going to catch you, especially because you'd just been through driving school and you learned all the possible ways that you could violate a, a, a traffic law. I mean, it's very difficult. If you want to absolutely follow every single rule of the road to actually accomplish that, there are ways that we, could, we mess up all the time. Nowadays, I see a cop in the rearview mirror, uh, no big deal. Partly because their station is right near my house, and I I know that's where they're going. But on the other hand, if you're misbehaving and you see a cop in the rearview, yeah, that's going to be terrifying. You want to be free from that kind of terror, Paul says? (laughs) Do what's Right. You'll be commended. The one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, you should be afraid. Rulers don't bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but really it's a matter of conscience. It's also why you pay taxes, by the way. The authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So give everybody what you owe them. If you owe taxes... Pay taxes. If you owe revenue, then you pay revenue. If you owe respect, then pay respect. And if you owe honor, then honor. The fact that we are in Christ, Paul says, doesn't mean you have a license to go off and be a jerk. In the fear of God, we submit to the authorities. And it is in fear of God that we do this. Unfortunately, the people did not quite get the lesson Because the next thing that happened, verse 41, is that the next day the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You've killed Yahweh's people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of Yahweh appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting, Yahweh said to Moses, Get away from the assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. And Moses said to Aaron, Get your censer. Put incense in it, along with burning coals from the, the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. God's wrath has come out. The plague has started. And even in the face of the rebellion that they were dealing with. Even with the opposition, the hostility that they were receiving from the people, Moses and Aaron's thought was to save them, to protect them, to intercede for them, to impose themselves between them and God's wrath. And Aaron did, just as Moses said. I guess it was easier for Moses than Aaron Aaron ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and he made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped, but 14,700 people died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah. And after that, Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting for the plague had stopped. I was struck the other day when I was praying in the Book of Common Prayer the psalm that came up that day had the line that the, God's mercy endures forever. And it occurred to me that I've never really thought of God's mercy enduring forever. I thought of his love enduring forever, right? Thought of his glory enduring forever, his justice enduring forever. But I realized that for us to say God's mercy endures forever is to recognize that it's an ongoing reality, right? Think about something, you know, somebody does something to hurt you or to offend you. You can show mercy today, and tomorrow you can think, yeah, no, after all, I don't think I want to show mercy, right? Think about somebody who owes you something, they say, I, I, I can't give it to you today. Say, that's all right. Don't worry about it today. And you do it maybe because you expect later on they'll have it. Or you do it maybe because you're feeling particularly generous or merciful today. It may be that eventually you're just going to forgive the whole debt. But you do that because you have the right not to. It's meaningful because it is something that is owed to you that you have the right to. As Paul says, if you owe somebody something, pay it to them. The reality that is so important for us to realize is that what we owe to God, we owe eternally. For God to show his mercy to us means that he is showing that Eternally it means that God is not holding against us the sins we have committed against him. When we receive God's forgiveness, we receive it eternally, even though he would be within his rights tomorrow to say, "Now I changed my mind. The fact is that our sin is rebellion against God. And what we have in the story of Korach and his followers is a particularly dramatic instance of rebellion. But our sins are themselves no less rebellious. When we choose to go our own way, when we say to God, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to do it the way I think I ought to do it. When we tell God what he is like rather than hearing that from him when we tell God what He owes us rather than recognizing what we owe Him, when we decide that we are going to improvise our religion rather than receive what God has revealed to us, we are rebelling. And our rebellion merits just punishment. That God's mercy extends to us forever means that today and tomorrow and the next day for all of eternity, he is withholding from us the penalty that is rightly due us. And it's easy for us to miss the magnitude of that, I think. I know it's easy for me. I can be so caught up in thinking about God's grace and his mercy and his love that I can forget just why it's necessary for Him to show grace and mercy to me. So when we take communion, as we are about to do, that's a good way that we remind ourselves of the stakes. We remind ourselves that God's grace is not cheap, as free as it is. That it was purchased for us at the cost of God's own Son, who died the death that would rightly be ours, to purchase for us the forgiveness that we so desperately need that we would not be able to merit on our own. We take the body and the blood of Jesus because unless they were broken and shed, there would be no forgiveness of sins. Unless... The body and blood of Jesus were not broken and shed. There would be no forgiveness of sins. Unless Jesus did what he did, we would face just punishment from the Almighty. We dare not take that lightly. We'll say the Lord's Prayer together, and then I'll invite you to stand with me to recite the Nicene Creed. When you come up to take the elements, the red is wine, the white is grape juice, the bread is unleavened. Please take the elements, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take of them together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Will you stand, please? We believe in one God, the Father, of the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. These elements are the gifts of God for the people of God. We invite all those who are in Christ to come and partake of his body and blood.